So today, let's dive into what it is that God wants to speak to us about today. What we're going to look at is we're going to look at the continuing picture, the continuing unfolding of the picture of the life of Jesus. If we're to be functioning, effective disciples of Jesus, then we need to do the thing that all disciples have done down through the ages, and that is imitate the life of Jesus. But to imitate the life of Jesus, we have to understand his words, we have to understand his works, and we have to understand his ways. And from time to time, over the last weeks, we've looked at one or the other of these things. We've looked at his words some weeks, we've looked at his works other weeks, and we've looked at his ways on other occasions. This week, we're going to just take the first opportunity of, I'm sure many in the coming weeks and months, the first opportunity to look at how these things fit together. How does his word fit together with the demonstration of the kingdom through the works of signs and wonders? How does that integrate with his way of doing things? Jesus had a way of doing things. And as we learn how to do his ways, how to do his works, and how to understand and articulate his words, so we become more effective disciples that he's called us to be. We're going to begin today by reading from Luke chapter 5 and verse 33, which is right at the end of the chapter that we'll be looking at. And by looking at the end of the chapter, we'll have an opportunity to gain a perspective that will give us insight across the entire text of this chapter. Let's read from Luke chapter 5 and verse 33. The people said to Jesus, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new garment will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants new, for he says, the old is better. Jesus is obviously giving an illustration of the difference between the new covenant that he has come to introduce and to forge and fashion in his own blood. Jesus is giving a distinction between that new covenant in himself and the old covenant introduced and led by Moses, established in the blood of animals and framed out in the law of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is making it clear that there is a distinction between the old and the new. And right at the very end of what it is that he's saying, he uses what the scholars call rabbinic hyperbole or rabbinic irony. 
Obviously, Jesus coming as the herald, as the, as the mediator of the new covenant, believes that the new covenant is superior to the old. Of course he does. Otherwise, he wouldn't be doing it. Of course, he believes that as the new covenant takes up into itself all of the terms and aspirations of the old, he believes that the new supersedes the old. He believes that the new is greater and more glorious and much more beneficial to a much wider group of people than the old, just as the rest of the New Testament articulates. And yet, his final words are these. When you've tasted the old wine, you always say, the old is better. This irony, this this sense of tension in what it is that Jesus is saying is entirely intended for his audience because he knows that all human beings are the same in every age. You see, for us, the future does not yet exist. And so we can't see it, we can't taste it, we can't touch it, we can't smell it. The only thing that exists is the present and the past. And in general, the present and the past give us a sense of familiarity. They give us, through that familiarity, a sense of security. And from that security, we gain our sense of who we are and what it is that we need to do as people. And so it is in every age and in our own circumstances here it's much easier for us to say, I preferred the old than the new. It's much easier for us to say, do you know what? I've tasted the old and I think it's better than the new. But that's because the new as yet has not been fully unfolded. Jesus was speaking to people who did not know what it would be like when he gave up his life, when he was raised from the dead, when he ascended into heaven and when he sent the Spirit upon all of his followers. They couldn't possibly comprehend that the new would be so glorious. And yet, and yet, he was prepared to carry people forward, introducing them to the challenge of the new, even though there was a tendency to cleave to the old. Jesus has come to do a new thing. Jesus has come to unfold a new wine, a new wineskin, a new way of connecting with God. The old wine and the old wineskin were defined by regulation and location. Regulation, the law, the expectations that were placed upon faithful believers in the old covenant were framed out by various different expectations of behavior. And so regulation was the undergirding of the old Location 
was also enormously important because in the same way that regulation created the way in which you connected with God, if you wanted to meet with God, more often than not, the way that you would do that is to go to the location of his presence. And his presence would be found in Jerusalem and in the temple. In the new wine and the new wineskin, regulation is replaced by relationship and location is now replaced by focus. Interesting this. Because God's presence is not located in one place, but is now present in the lives of the believer and around the lives of the followers of Jesus, the most important thing to do is to learn how to have a relationship with God, how to foster, cultivate, and maintain that relationship. And in that relationship, learn how to focus on what it is that God is doing. Jesus himself demonstrates that he is the first illustration of what it is that he's talking about. In John chapter five, verse 19, a verse that I've referred you to on a number of occasions, Jesus says this, I can only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus, in many ways, is the first disciple. It's difficult for us to think of this at first. But Jesus wants us to be disciples of him as he is a disciple of his father because he's watching what his father's doing and he's doing that. Now that's an amazing, kind of a bit mind-blowing to be quite honest with you, but it's an amazing thought that Jesus came not simply to lead a new way, but to, but to demonstrate and to model a new way. And of course, his new way was to, was to be in a deeply intimate relationship that he maintained with his father and to focus on the things that his father was focusing on. We can learn this. We can, we can begin to move in this way. We can be freed from information and regulation. We can be freed from the belief that you have to be in a particular kind of building or a particular kind of gathering for God's presence to be available. We can be free from the old way and liberated into the new. So often we find ourselves drifting back to the old rather than moving with the new. But Jesus says, you know, you can learn this. On one occasion, he's talking with a promiscuous woman. She's come to get water at a well. You can read the story in John chapter four. He's talking with her and the disciples come back and are shocked that he should be talking first with a woman and then with a promiscuous woman and then a woman from a heretic sect. So she's a heretic, she's a woman, shock, horror, and on top of all of that, she's a promiscuous heretic woman. My goodness, who could possibly talk to somebody like that? Well, Jesus could. 
And he introduced her to amazing understandings of her life and of who it was that was speaking to her. And at the end of the conversation, as the disciples are coming to meet with Jesus, she goes off and tells all of the people in her village what it is that Jesus has revealed to her about herself. And the people from the village rush out to listen to and to gather to Jesus. And as they do that, wearing the ancient robes, no doubt, of the Samaritan people, which are the white robes of their ethnic identity, Jesus says, open your eyes and look. The fields are white unto harvest. Of course, in our more modern translations, we don't really know what white unto harvest means. Of course, it's a reference to the way that grain becomes this bleached color before it's time for harvest. But of course, Jesus is also making reference to the fact that here are all of these Samaritans, these these ethnically distant people, these alien people who are heretics to the true faith coming to listen to him. Jesus was teaching his disciples to see what the Father was doing. In the passage uh, that, that we look at in the other parts of this chapter, we see some, some interesting things about the way in which Jesus operates. Jesus goes to the home of Peter. The city, the town of Capernaum is gathered to listen to him. Most of the homes of kind of middle class working people were built around a small square opening at the center of the home. And that square opening, that that open space often had a tiled roof to give shade to the edges so that people could work and, and function out of doors. And then the rooms of the house were all assembled around that square. All of the people of the town had pressed into every room and were squashed into the little square there. And when the man who was paralyzed was brought by his friends, they of course couldn't get in. They gained access to the roof by the stairway on the outside of the building and they they no doubt walked across the the, the flat roof where, where the drying fish were being dried for sale. No doubt stepping over the nets still to be mended. And they removed the tiles from that outer area of shading. And as they removed the tiles, they lowered the man before Jesus, paralyzed, lying on his mat. And Jesus knew that his biggest problem was not that he was paralyzed. How did he know? Because he was listening to his father. How did he know? Because he was looking for what his father was doing. He knew that this man's first need, the greatest priority in his life, like for all of us, was not healing but forgiveness. And so the first words out of his mouth are, son, your sins are forgiven. 
course, the leaders and the religious people are all murmuring away and Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said, why do you, why do you think these things? He said, but so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He looked at the paralyzed man and said, get up and take your mat and go home. Now, he may not have been able to get in because of the press of the crowd, but I can promise you, when a miracle like that takes place, you're able to do whatever you want. The crowd parted for him miraculously and, and allowed him to leave as Jesus had bidden him to do. But isn't it interesting that Jesus knew that the thing that this man was carrying more than anything else was guilt? I remember when Sally and I were working in a poor community in the inner city of London. We'd be gathered for worship every week and, and one guy used to come in and sit on the back pew and weep through the entire service and then would rush out before the end. And he would do it week after week and it would be the same thing. He would, he would go onto the back seat and he would weep and weep and weep and then he would get out before anybody could speak to him. I said to some of the team, I said, who is that person? They said, we don't know. He always comes in late and he always leaves early. Well, one week I decided that I was gonna get him. And so as I finished the sermon and before the band started playing, I scooted up the aisle and grabbed him just as he was leaving the building. And I said, sir, you're very welcome. Is there anything I can do? His face was wet with tears. He said, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I said, would you, would you like to sit down and have a, a chat? Well, reluctantly, he sat down and he told me his story. He'd been a raging alcoholic for much of his adult life. And he had beaten his wife mercilessly, mercilessly for many years. And only in the last few months had he come to his senses. He put the bottle away and had begun to serve his wife in the way that he believed that he ought to have done through all of his life. His, li his wife, of course, was somewhat reluctant to receive his kindness, understandably. But when he heard that he could be forgiven, his life was completely transformed. He couldn't believe it. He had hardly any way to comprehend that he could be forgiven for what it was that he'd done, that the guilt that he carried could somehow be taken away. And as he learned what the new wine offered, what the new covenant in the blood of Jesus offered, he was an utterly transformed man. He barely ever left the church buildings. He was always there. He brought his wife and she eventually came to know the Lord. He spoke to his neighbours. He was a completely transformed individual. 
simply because his guilt was carried away. I wonder, I wonder whether there are people that you'll encounter this week who are silently carrying the burden of guilt and there's no one to deliver them of such a burden. If we carry on in the same chapter, we find that Luke says straight after that event of the man being healed of his paralysis, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector at his tax booth, a man called Levi, also known as Matthew, the man who wrote the first gospel in the New Testament. There, this educated man who basically was part of the connection between organized crime and the government, as you would find in nations like perhaps Mexico or Russia, where these kind of mafioso types use, use heavies from, from the military to back up their position. Just outside of Capernaum to the east of Capernaum was the border between the region overseen by Herod the Tetrarch and his brother Philip the Tetrarch. They were all sons of Herod the Great and he had divided his kingdom to his various different sons. And when goods crossed the border, there was a levy and the levy was exacted by the taxman and of course he took a skim so that he himself was able to enrich himself. And so tax collectors were hated by the people of the land. Every Jewish man, woman and child saw them as a social pariah and as an unnecessary evil in their society. This person would be completely alienated from the life of the religious community and so would grow up with the underbelly of society. Levi leaves his tax booth, follows Jesus and calls all of his friends for a celebration and all the religious people begin to wag their finger and tut. No doubt there were people there who were involved in the sex industry people who were involved in all kinds of heinous carryings on and crimes. And they challenged Jesus and his disciples and they said, why are you, why are you with people like that? And Jesus said, I've not come for the healthy, but I've come for the sick. Of course, if they listened on as he continued to teach, they would themselves realize that they were sick as well. Maybe not in as obvious a way, but nevertheless in as much need of grace as anyone else. Another friend of mine, more recently, since we've arrived here in the States, reminds me of that scenario. A friend of mine who worked in the American Special Forces, a man who lives daily with P 
PTSD, a man who often struggles to sleep at night, a man who's afraid to tell the people that he knows the things that he's done. Because in the service of his nation, he has done terrible things and feels a deep shame and finds it impossible to get free of the shadow of such shame. And even though he's been told by one and all that he's been a good soldier, he finds it difficult to reconcile with the life that he's called to be as a Christian. And then he tells me that one day he was reading the scriptures and he realized for the very first time that God completely accepted him. All the baggage, all the burdens, all the shameful things for which he felt terrible every day. It was all accepted. God embraced all of him and in that acceptance, he was liberated from the things that caused him shame. You see, the way that Jesus functioned was that he lived in relationship to his father and in relationship to his father, he, he was able to focus on the people and the places that needed his focus the most. And the people that he describes with a kind of collective noun as the poor were the place of his greatest focus. You see, the poor, in the words of Jesus and recorded for us here in Luke, are not necessarily the monetarily poor. That's a particular word in Greek that is used on certain occasions, but, but here the word is the same word translated into English as the word poor that Jesus used when he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That word poor means those who crouch, those who are broken by life those who are beaten down by circumstance, those that are defeated by their past, those that are overwhelmed by their guilt and by their shame. There's good news for those poor. So how then can we, how then can we learn with gratitude and maturity to not only drink the new wine of the new covenant, but share it? How can you and I function as people of new wine with a new wineskin, not defined by regulation and location? but by relationship and focus. Well, the only way 
is that we learn to integrate our life in the way that Jesus did. Just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus living under the open heaven. Remember, the sky was torn above him at his baptism. And the words of the Father addressed him as a son. You're my son whom I love. With you, I'm very pleased. And the Spirit of God descended upon him. Remember that. And remember that Jesus went with the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and then came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Well, that pattern that Jesus establishes at the beginning of his ministry is a pattern that continues throughout. If you look with me at Luke chapter five and verse 16, which is the verse immediately before the healing of the paralyzed man, it says this, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. You see, the way that Jesus puts it all together is that he lives a different way. He lives a different way. He lives a way that that maintains his relationship with his father and renews his focus in the place where his father is working amongst the poor. Jesus often returns, often withdraws to the lonely place. It's as though you and I, when we look at the life of Jesus, need to learn from him how he lived in the light of God's presence under the open heaven that allowed him to know the kingdom was present all the while. Got a little illustration of what that might be. You and I, we, we go through life and um, for much of our life, we feel as though we're in this kind of zone between the light and the dark. Of course, we know we're children of light. We know that the Spirit lives within us. We know that God loves us and that we, we know that we're the recipients of grace. But the truth is, we often find ourselves not really knowing that we're loved that day. We often find ourselves knowing or not knowing that, that we're filled with the Spirit that day. We're, we're often unable to grasp that today is a day when we walk intimately with our Father God. The way that Jesus functioned was that he often withdrew to the solitary place, away from the people. Revival had broken out in Capernaum. Jesus had seen the mother of Peter healed. He saw dozens and dozens of people at the door of Peter's home. And the next day when, when the disciples woke, they couldn't find Jesus. Jesus was gone. And he was out in the lonely place by himself. And the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Basically, you need to come back and deal with revival in Capernaum. 
But Jesus had been in the, in the lonely place. He had been in the, in the place of retreat and withdrawal. Jesus had gone back to the pattern of the wilderness as his starting point. And there Jesus would hear afresh the words of the Father addressing him as son. There Jesus would receive afresh the infilling and the anointing of the Spirit. And there Jesus would be clarified again in what it is that he needed to do. And so he says to the disciples, let's go to another place. Let's go to another village because they need to hear as well. There are people who you will meet this week who are overwhelmed with guilt. There are people who will have no way of being able to get free from shame. But God has you to be his representative, to speak and to act on his behalf. He has the disciples of Jesus abroad in the Dayton area, working where you work, living where you live, able to do what you do. And as you learn afresh what it means to maintain your relationship with the Father and refocus on what it is that he's committed to, then he'll use you as an instrument of change. One of the things that we're doing around here is we're on a a kind of corporate level for us as a whole church. We're beginning to take on the simple disciplines of what it means to maintain a relationship with God, not as regulation, but as a, a joyful opportunity. So we meet together every day, Monday through Friday at 8.30 for prayer. It's a small group of of prayer warriors, but it's a symbol to all of us that it's possible for each of us at the beginning of every day to come under the open heaven, to reconnect with the one who has taken up a place in our lives and to be refilled, ready for service. Come and join us if you can at 8.30. I know it's impossible for, for many and that's not really the point. The point is this, that we have a symbol of what it is that we all need to do. It's not possible for us to live in the warmth of God's grace and in the sunshine of his presence without us committing ourselves to withdrawing like Jesus did and praying. Just think about it for a moment. If the Son of God needs to withdraw to pray, then how do we think we're ever going to manage without doing that? The Son of God needs to regularly withdraw to pray. How could we possibly function as his disciples by doing less? And so the word to us today, you can put the lights back up there at Robin. So the word to us today is very simple. There is a new wine and there is a new wineskin. 
and it is all about relationship and it is all about focus. But of course, the call is this. Will we commit ourselves to live this way? Will we embrace this opportunity to be this way? Because I believe if we do, there's a world out there waiting for disciples who live in the way of Jesus. And I wonder which burdens will be lifted this week. I wonder what shame will be removed this week simply because God works through you and I. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, for your ministry among us of new wine and new wineskins. Lord, we want both. We want the new wine of the new life and we want it in the new way that you reveal to us of living a life that is deeply committed to an intimate relationship of love with you. We want that, we want that new wineskin, Lord, of a, of a new life that is filled by the presence and power of your spirit. Lord, may we this week be your representatives and may we touch the lives of those paralyzed by guilt, by those alienated by shame. And may we, Lord, be those who return to the gathering next week, Lord, with joy because we have sown in tears and reaped in joy. And so, Lord, we pray for this and we ask you that you'd give us the great joy of being participants in your harvest. And we pray it in the good name of Jesus and all God's people say.